Well, good day, friends, and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. Uh, it's great you're watching with us today. Uh, this has been prepared for the 16th of October. Uh, and as we begin, hear these words of Scripture from Psalm 17. We call upon you, Lord, for you answer us. Incline your ear to us and hear our words. Keep us as the apple of the eye. Hide us in the shadow of your wings. Well, friends, what a great prayer. What a great thing to bring to God. Uh, we go now in praise to him. Be 
As we come now to hear from God's word, let me pray. Almighty and ever-living God, our source of power and inspiration, give us strength and joy in serving you as followers of Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, well, our Old Testament Bible reading for today comes from Genesis chapter 50, verses 14 through to 20. Our psalm for today is Psalm 2. And then you'll also see bits of that psalm picked up in our New Testament reading in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be working through the whole of the chapter, verses 1 to 31. So do pause the video for a moment now, uh, have a read of those passages, and then we'll come back to think about it together. Well, let's pray as we come to think about Acts chapter 4 together. Heavenly Father, uh, please give us your spirit that we may hear you and understand your word clearly. Help us to leave here knowing you and knowing ourselves and knowing the world around us all the more uh, and living for your praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why is it that we replay moments of conflict in our lives over and over again in our heads? Uh, when someone has a go at you for parking funny in, in the Woolies car park, you don't forget that sort of thing. When I'm in a heated conversation, a heated argument rather, playing touch footy and things, I don't forget that. I replay it over and over in my head for years and years later, thinking about what I should have said, thinking about what happened and how they reacted. When someone wants to have a go at you for the way that you parent your kids, uh, when you've messed up at work and, and someone just won't let it go, when someone takes exception to the way you view politics or the environment or the resources we have, or when there's just hostility to some part of your life or what you believe in. Why do these kind of moments of conflict leave an impact on us? Why do we remember them so much? Well, I think it's because we don't like hostility. We all want to be liked, or at least we want to be uh, well respected by those that we bump into, by those that we know. And so, what should we do as Christians then, when we come up against opposition for following Jesus? Now, I'm aware that not everyone who's watching right now will be a follower of Jesus, but for those of you who are, maybe you've experienced this before. Experienced opposition for simply being a Christian, for following Jesus. Now, we don't like to be singled out or given a hard time for what we believe. Now, high-profile instances of this like uh, Andrew Thorburn being pushed out of Essendon as a CEO simply because he is a part of a church who won't compromise on the truth of God's word. I mean, should we expect that kind of opposition? Should we expect even that kind of opposition? Well, I want to suggest that when the world says, we love your type of church, we love your brand of Christianity, when we hear that, when we th think that's what's going on, alarm bells should be ringing. Why? 
Well, because as we get into Acts chapter 4 today, opposition in the name of Jesus seems to be the norm for his followers. Now, if you're the first time here, this is your first time watching with us uh, this week, or if you missed last week, uh, last week we were in chapter 3 in the book of Acts, and we saw two apostles, two eyewitnesses of Jesus who were still around. They're Peter and John, and they heal a paralyzed man. Guy couldn't walk. They said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The guy trusted, and he could. Right? The crowd were amazed. And so they gathered to Peter and John, and Peter and John said, don't look at us. Look to Jesus. This is the power of God at work. This is the power of Jesus at work. So turn and give your lives to him. And so how do the listeners then respond? Well, this is where we get to in chapter 4 today. And so the first point, as you can see in your outline, if you've got it there with you, is followers of Jesus should expect opposition. Now have a look at verses 1 to 3 with me and, uh, and follow along. Uh, this follows straight on rather from, from chapter 3. There's no break there. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, right? These are the religious elite guys, right? They're the ones in charge. They came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, put them in jail. Now these religious elite guys, they take offence. Peter has told all the people gathered there back in chapter 3, you killed Jesus, you killed the author of life. But God, but God raised him from the dead. And now they have concerns about what's going on in this teaching, both theologically and politically. A resurrection doesn't fit with their belief of the afterlife. They don't like it. And as this you know, new, new young Christian group is growing, it's the sort of dangerous movement that could cause kind of political upstir and unrest amongst between them and the Romans. Not to mention that there's the elephant in the room, this guy who's been miraculously healed that everyone's seen. Now, they weren't just concerned. We were told they are greatly disturbed. And so what do they do? What's their tactic in dealing with all this? Well, their tactic is to impose silence. It's a common tactic with, with any politics. If you can, silence, opposition, right? And it's the quickest way for them, for these religious guys to achieve this, is to imprison them. And so they do. Now, in the story, in the narrative of Acts, this seems to be a bit of a downer, a bit of a dampener on what's going on. So far in the story, Acts 1 to 3, we've seen just this, this growth, this explosion of people putting their faith in Jesus as the Saviour. And what do we see here? We see opposition. Two of the key apostles, witnesses of Jesus, put in jail. What's going to happen now? That's what we're, that's what we're wondering and asking. Well, Luke reminds us that even as the opposition grows, even as it rises, God continues to do his work. And we see that in verse 4. The opposition to Jesus, they could arrest the apostles, but they couldn't arrest the gospel. And so look at verse 4. We're told that many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Despite opposition, 
God's church is still growing. And there are two ways to respond to the good news of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection will either be seen as the power of God, or it will be seen as something foolish, something weak, something to be opposed. And make no mistake, to side with Jesus is to take on opposition from the world. A persecution is a normal element of genuine Christian faith. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John chapter 15. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. What goes for Jesus goes for those who follow him. And for us, when we lift our eyes to the world, we can see that. We see that opposition for standing with Jesus is the the daily reality for hundreds of millions of believers all over the world. This is why an organisation like Open Doors produces their world watch list of the top 50 most dangerous places to live as a Christian. And that's why they encourage us to be praying for these people. But it's not just them out there, is it? I mean, I've got a mate who I went through Bible college with. Uh, One day at lunch, he he was telling me his story. And it's a story that's, well, it's very different to my own in terms of getting there. Now, for him, his family were not supportive of him being at college. It's not just they were indifferent. Now, they told him he shouldn't be there. They told him that what he's doing, that what he believed, was just a waste of time. And that he and his wife would not have their support and encouragement throughout those years. And in fact, in ministry beyond that either. I mean, any opposition to Jesus is uncomfortable. But when it comes from those that we, we know, that we respect, that we love, that's something else. And I know for many people at our church, for many perhaps of you watching as well, that that'll be the case, that you'll know this personally. But as we're reminded here, hostility comes at all kinds of levels. The hostility towards Peter and John here, that came from the top. And there were political motivations attached to it. Someone in my Bible study group this week said, it's just amazing how similar this story is to our society now. When followers of Jesus nail their flag to the mast, they should expect opposition to come up against them in one way or another. And so the question is, Christians should expect opposition, but how should we respond? How do we react when we face this kind of hostility that comes upon us. Well, in the rest of the chapter, we see how Peter, John, and the rest of the early Christian church respond, and I think it's a good encouragement for us as well. And so firstly, as we get to verses 8 to 12, in the face of opposition, we need to remember our Saviour and his empowering spirit. At the end of verse 7, the court of these religious officials, they begin their interrogation And they ask Peter and John a pretty straight, simple question. They say, by what power or by what name did you do this? How is this crippled man being healed? That's what they want to know. Now, this was the same mob who condemned Jesus. And later on, in verse 15, they're called the Sanhedrin. It's it's like the supreme court of the Jewish authorities. Now, to stand before these guys, it would have been terrifying. It would have been 
perhaps paralyzing. Now, back at the end of Luke's gospel, his biographical account of Jesus' life, we're, we're told about Peter. We're told how Peter acts. Jesus is in there being persecuted and, and in front of these uh, the Sanhedrin. What's Peter doing? At the, at the mere thought of being stood up in front of these guys, he's deserted Jesus. In fact, when we see Peter, he couldn't even, he couldn't even stand up for Jesus when accused by a lowly servant girl. But the Peter we see here, the Peter we see here, he's radically different. He's not only happy to stand there in front of the Sanhedrin, but he takes them on as well. And we see the reason for his boldness at the beginning of verse 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a man who knows without reservation that Jesus is Lord. And through the Spirit of Jesus, Peter has gone from coward to courageous. And it's this same spirit that we have, who is our helper and advocate. And I want to encourage you to remember that today. Now, through the power of this spirit, Peter, he gives a summary of what he said already in chapter 3. But what he says, it loses none of its force. Have a look at verse 10. He answers their question. He says, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then in verse 11, the, the point that he's making there is that though you rejected him, Jesus is the cornerstone in God's building, the one who fulfills all of God's purposes that he, pro- that he prophesied about uh, through, through his people and by his spirit. But perhaps the most important thing, though, that he says, it's in verse 12. What he says there is the implication of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. Verse 12, have a look. He says, salvation, right? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, faced with uh, the vast vast array of uh, religions around the world, uh, many find the idea attractive that they're simply all uh, simply equal paths to the one truth. Uh, one of my favourite sayings uh, growing up and as I started work is this. My favourite saying, there is more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, it's practical and in the right audience can offer just the right amount of shock value to make the point that I want. But when it comes to God, when it comes to dealing with what separates us from him, there is not more than one way to skin that cat. Now these exclusive claims of of Jesus and Peter here, they don't leave us that option. The Christian faith, it can't just be one truth. If the Christian faith is true, then it by default means that all other faiths are false. Well, it might be possible for other religions to kind of squeeze them together a bit. um, But the Christian religion, no. It's like a puzzle piece drawn from a different set. No matter how hard you push, no matter how hard you try and fold the edges, it's not going to fit in together. In John 14, Jesus says this. He says, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I hope you grasp the, the gravity of that kind of statement. 
are the kind of statement that Peter as well is making in verse 12. That salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Because our lives are marked by a rebellion against God, we are in the wrong with him. But through trusting in the powerful name of Jesus, and only Jesus, only that name, the one who died for us, then we can be saved. Then we can find new life in God. This is a statement of exclusivity. And it's a statement that brings opposition. But if it's true, it's also something that should give us hope and courage when we face whatever comes our way. Because if it's true, there is nothing more important in life than knowing Jesus. And so, in the face of opposition, we... Remember the Saviour and his empowering spirit for us. But we also, as we get to the next section, I want to encourage you, we also should keep listening to God and speaking about Jesus. Now, something that took the Sanhedrin by shock here is that Peter's address is so succinct and clear. And yet he's also a theological novice. He's a fisherman, right? He's got no formal training. These guys should be dummies, but they've made a clear case. And alongside them stands a healed man. Evidence that demands a verdict. The Sanhedrin, they can see him. But they haven't got a word of reply. Yet their hostility continues. And it's almost comical. They can see it, but they keep going. What do they do? Verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Just like putting him in jail, their tactic again is to impose silence. And that's what opponents of disturbing truth often seek to do to deal with them. And their response to the gospel of Jesus is neither uh, reason, debate, and logical argument, nor is it a search for more information. They simply demand silence so that the uncomfortable truth might disappear. I wonder who you would say has the stronger case. The one who wants to talk it out? Or the one who demands silence? But do you see then how, how Peter responds? It's just brilliant, yet it's obvious. Verses 19 and 20, they say, Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Friends, when the people in our society and culture raise their voices against God's word and tell us what we should think is right or wrong, who do we listen to? Them or God? When we're told that our view doesn't belong, when we're told to stop speaking about Jesus, who do we listen to? What do we do? Well, the temptation can be to obey the command of the Sanhedrin here and to stop speaking, to be silent. Friends, but if we are captivated by the love of our Saviour, uh, the one who made himself a servant for us and died in our place, then the response that should well up out of our heart is, should be similar to what Peter and John say here in verse 20. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. In the face of opposition, we... Remember our Saviour and his empowering spirit. And we also keep listening to God and speaking about the hope we have in Jesus. 
And finally, as we get to the last section of, of the passage, in the face of opposition, turn to the word and prayer. As we move on, we see that after Peter and John are threatened a little more for good measure, the religious leaders, they send them on their way. They kick them out. And after Peter and John share what's happened with the other Christians, with their brothers and sisters in Christ, the first response is to pray. And their prayers start with praise and acknowledgement of God. In verse 24, you can see it there. They acknowledge that they acknowledge him as the God of creation, the one who made all things to all things belong. In verses 25 and 6, he's the God of revelation, who speaks through people by his Holy Spirit. And then in verses 27 and 28, that he is the God of history, that he's the one behind the scenes pulling the strings. Because they know God, because they know his word, they can make sense of what's going on in the world around them. And this doesn't cease to be true for us also. God's word is a light for our lives. Uh, through it, God guides us. He helps us to know him and ourselves better and to make sense of what's going on in our world and, and how it fits into his purposes. And we see here that these guys, they acknowledge that even opposition against Jesus didn't ruin God's plan. God is bigger than that. In fact, the greatest of evils God used to achieve the greatest of goods. Jesus, the Son of God, dying, God used to bring us forgiveness and new life. Well, at verse 29 then, their prayers turn from praise and acknowledgement into a prayer of intercession, a prayer of request. And they draw the hostility and threats to God's attention. But the way they continue to pray, I feel like it takes me by surprise. They don't pray in the way I expect them to. I expect them at this point to say, Lord, consider their threats and bring judgment down on them. Or perhaps, Lord, consider their threats and just make it go away. But they don't pray like that. Now, how do they pray? Have a look at verse 29. They pray, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In the face of hostility... They're praying for themselves. Would we pray this for ourselves? What a challenging prayer. Lord, in the face of opposition, you know what's going on, but help me to be bold. Help me to speak of the name of Jesus, even though people might not want to hear about it. Well, they also then pray that God would send signs and wonders to confirm the word that's preached by the apostles. And as we look down a bit later, if you jump to chapter 5, verse 12, you can see that God actually answers this prayer. God did continue to accredit the, the message of his eyewitnesses to Jesus, the apostles, through wonders. But more significant than that, verse 31 here, God answers their prayer for boldness. And it happens through a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're told here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Luke uses this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, on, on many occasions, many points, and it's, he uses it to describe how God prepares his people to proclaim a message, like Peter, back in verse 8. Now, as we look at all this, can you see how there's a sense of community, of fellowship with all the believers here? Can you see how this is a picture of life and ministry that's marked by the Word of God, by his Spirit, 
and by prayerful dependence and bold proclamation? And will you pray these things for yourself and, and for those you're with and for our church as a whole? Praying especially that we will be bold in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Opposition to Jesus, friends, it, it does not thwart God's plans for the world. As we see in, in verse 31, opposition does not stop the proclamation of the gospel. Now, China is a country that's tried hard to enforce no religion. It's a nation that seeks to silence proclamation of Jesus. And yet, despite frequent government crackdowns, the church in China is growing in a way that almost no one could anticipate. Because of government persecution, uh, most Chinese Christians, they worship in uh, underground or unofficial house churches. And so it's hard to get accurate numbers, but a conservative estimate would say that there's a population of over 68 million Christians living in China, growing at a rate as well of 10% each year. Now, we're not talking about people who just tick a box on the census, like many people in Australia. We're talking about people who have truly given their lives to the Lord Jesus as the one in whom they can find, the only one in whom they can find salvation. These Chinese Christians are convinced that the good news of Jesus is so good that like Peter and John, they cannot help but speaking about the one they have come to know and find life in. I think it's almost staggering to see, to hear what's going on in spite of what they're facing, in spite of government uh, crackdown. But let me ask you, do you think these Chinese Christian people from the bottom of their hearts are praying that God's spirit would be at work in them and are praying for boldness for themselves? You bet they are. What we see happen in chapter four here, I mean, it's not the last of the opposition in Acts either. In chapter five, the last half of chapter five, we see it continue in almost Almost, in fact, an identical um, story to what we see here before the Sanhedrin. And let me read for you how it finishes in chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. We're told that the Sanhedrin, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And they ordered them to speak in the name of Jesus no longer, and they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin. What do they do? Left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so Christians, Christians expect opposition for the name of Jesus. And when it comes, we remember our Saviour and his empowering spirit. When it comes, we keep listening to God and speaking about Jesus. And when it comes, we turn to the word and to prayer. And so that with the apostles, we can rejoice. Because like them, like Christians throughout the ages before us, and like our brothers and sisters in China, we rejoice because we have been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus, the one who gave his life, the one who suffered in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows us, who loves us, who knows what's happening in our world. And so, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to as we reflect on Acts 4, to see that suffering, that opposition, is a part of standing with Jesus. And to not be downcast with despair when it comes, but to cast our eyes on you. Uh, to, to rely on you as the one who 
who lovingly sustains us by your word and empowers us by your spirit. Father, make us a people who call on you in all times in prayer, but especially uh, when opposition comes. Father, please continue to bless uh, the Chinese Christian church movement. Bless what's going on there. Bless what's going on around the world as well as people stand up in awful circumstances for the name of Jesus. Father, we give you thanks for the great hope that we have that on that last day, I will stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray these things for ourselves and for the world in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, with that, we go to a time of praise. Strength to cast at fears No one 
or friends would come now to a time of prayer. Uh, and in a moment, as normal, there'll be a blue screen that comes up with a few suggested prayer points. Feel free to pray from things there. Uh, pray in what's going on uh, in your own life. Uh, and for those that you're with, uh, don't not pray. Uh, take this opportunity to present the things of our lives, the things of this world, the things of the Gospels of God. We've seen in Acts chapter 4 today uh, that this is a community. These Christians are marked by prayer and dependence on God. And so let's spend time with him. Uh, before we do that, let me uh, pray and give thanks to God for the way that uh, he's blessed us uh, and for money that comes in to support the work of the gospel here at St. Augustine's. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the way that you do bless us uh, in the Lord Jesus and help us to respond in the right ways of praise and worship. Father, thanks that we can uh, worship you uh, with uh, all of our lives, but including our wallets and finances as well. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, what will come in this week and uh, what comes in online. Uh, Lord, we pray that it might be used for the growth of your kingdom as you see fit. Uh, Father, please uh, use, our, use the finances that come in and use, uh, use us as a church uh, to boldly speak the name of Jesus so that many people might turn to him and be saved. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We'll go down to a time of prayer and then we'll go on to a time of praise after that.
Friends, how wonderful it is that we have a God who knows us, uh, who made us, uh, and who has redeemed us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, I hope today has been an encouragement to you. And let me finish at the words uh, of the end of, at the end of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Well, have a great week. We'll see you next time.